Hey, okay, we're recording now. We're good. All right. I shattered the screen on my iPad this last week, so I am a very, very sad, 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 sad person. Um, so I am now recording using my phone. So everybody say, hi, phone. Hi. I'm just kidding. You don't actually have to do that. <laughs> this thing. Hi. Um, I'll cut this off the recording. Don't worry. Y'all won't be online. Um, how many of y'all have ever... Uh, seen the Disney movie Beauty and the Beast? Anybody ever seen it? If you haven't, you really owe it to yourself to do so. Um, the, one, one of the, the songs in the movie is actually called, shocker, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Um, and one of the lines in the song is, uh, tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, Beauty and the Beast. And then you have you know, Julie Andrews singing, it's the teapot, and you know, there's the beautiful, it's wonderful. Uh, the gist of it, though, is that even though you're watching this story play out in front of you, you're seeing the, the hideous prince be saved by the beautiful will-be princess and his heart is changing, that even though the story you're watching in front of you is that particular story, the idea of the song is that this is nothing new. This is a story that's been told over and over and over and over again. And if you've ever noticed, most of the stories that we have that are actually good, they're not new, are they? We tell the same stories over and over and over and over again. Since we're talking about Disney, I don't know that Disney has come up with a new story in about 50 years. It's the same ones over and over and over again. In fact, the movies that they release, what they do is they release them and then they put them into a vault and 10 years later they release them again. They've released Lion King on DVD about 14 times now. And people act like it's the new one every single time. Let's transition from Disney over to church. Um, you know, I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old story. Right? That we don't, that y'all, there's nothing new under the sun. That we've been telling the same story as a church for 2,000 years. And if the Lord tarries, we will tell the same story for 2,000 more. That it's not going to change. But what I think we miss sometimes is the power of a story. To change hearts, to change minds, to change lives, is that there's a reason that, you know, other than, you know, what, what Bible study is it easier for you to get into and remember parts of? Is it easier for you to get into and remember parts of Romans? Or do you remember Moses saying, let my people go? And then you have this vision in your mind of Charlton Heston holding up his stick and the water goes... And then you, you got, you know, other, there's a story there. And you remember the story. And in the New Testament, Paul tells you that all these things were written so that we might understand that, that their story is actually our story. But the entirety of the Bible from Genesis 1 until the end of Revelation is actually one whole story. And the last chapter of Revelation hasn't happened yet, has it? So we're in the middle of the story, aren't we? I want this morning for us to look at the story. 
And this is weird for me as a preacher, okay? I'm going to go ahead and tell you because y'all know me. Y'all know how I preach. I love to take one passage and sit down and wring the marrow out of every verse I can. But as an expositor, which is what I do, that means I have to preach the message the way it is put in front of me in the book. And in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, I don't get to do that unless I tell you the story. So my God mandates that I preach this sermon this way. I don't have a choice. So I want us to read verses 1 through 6, and then in about 25 minutes you'll see those verses again. We will come back to them. We're going to bookend with them today. Okay? So, if you will stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to talk about a really old story. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Father, I pray that you would give me the ability to preach this sermon the way that I think you want me to. And Lord, change all of our hearts by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I want to take this opportunity to tell you guys the story of the Bible. And hopefully, by the end of today, help you find your place in it if you don't know where that is already. But for me to do that, we have to talk about these six verses that I just read at the beginning. The, the entire point of this passage is this scroll that's in the hand of God. That this centers around this scroll, this scroll that the one on the throne is holding. Which means our first question should be what? What in the world is this thing? What is this scroll and why is it such a big deal? And why is John weeping that no one can take it or look at it? And why is it sealed up? And why can't anyone take it? And what belongs to the one who does take it? Well, I want us to look and see if maybe based on the Bible we can figure out what this scroll is. So I looked throughout Scripture for other scrolls that might be similar. And in Ezekiel 2 verses 9 and 10 we find a scroll that might be this scroll... Because Ezekiel 2, 9 and 10, this is not on your handout, says, Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, the scroll of a book was in it. Okay, so we've got God on His throne, check. We've got a scroll in His hand, check. Then He spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside. Okay, check and check. that This looks like this scroll, right? And written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Well... Now we start to see differences. First off, let's look at some similarities. God's holding both these scrolls in His hand. Both scrolls have writing on both sides, but that's where the similarities end. We know what's written on Ezekiel's scroll, but we don't know what's written on the one in Revelation. 
There's no mention of any kind of seal on Ezekiel's scroll, but there's the one in Revelation is sealed seven times. And the idea in Greek is that you would roll it up a little bit. So if you, if, if you see what I'm doing here, you would roll it a little bit. I'm bad at this. You would roll it a little bit and you would seal it right here. And then you'd roll it a little bit and you'd seal it right here. And then you'd roll it a little bit and you'd seal it right here. So it's not just that it's got seven seals in one spot. It's that you would seal it and then roll it a little bit more so that you can't even open it all the way without breaking them. So this, this thing is locked down. So the Revelation scroll is sealed seven times, preventing anyone from reading it at seven different points. In the first two verses of Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel is given the scroll and told to eat it. So not only does he know what's on it, it's given to him. The scroll in Revelation seemingly has no one worthy to receive it and certainly not eat it. It does not seem possible to me that these scrolls are the same scroll. So there goes my first thing. How do I know that this can't be this scroll? So I'm back to square one. So instead, we need to look at uh, context for what this might be. Since we don't have any comparisons, the scene in heaven changes when this scroll is about to be given. Because if you look back at, at verse 4, or not verse 4, if you look back at chapter 4, you'd remember what happens around the, the throne. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's rumbling, there's all these voices that this is a temple scene in heaven. We talked about last week at every point in Revelation where something in heaven is about to happen that is a massive change. There is thunder, there is lightning, there is rumblings. So something massive has been about to occur. And after that rumbling... There's the scroll. So this has to be something of cosmic importance that's important to everybody. The scroll in Ezekiel was just for the Jewish exiles, but this has to deal with the whole cosmos. The song that the elders and the cherubim in chapter 4 was previously singing was about God's work in creation. They say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. That's what they've been singing for as long as Revelation can remember. Over and over and over and over again. But, when the scroll is taken by the Lamb, their song changes. If you look halfway down in chapter 5 in your Bible, which is probably on the page you're open of, listen to what the elders sing after the Lamb takes the scroll. And this is next week's sermon. <laughs> he said, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you created the world? Because you were slain and have redeemed us, some translations say have redeemed a people, to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation that have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. After the first six verses of Revelation 5, the elders are praising God for His redemptive work. So something about this scroll has to do with redemption. So are there any scrolls in Scripture that are linked with redemption? The answer is yes. There are. Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 through 15. I will just read them and see if you can think of any way this might help us this morning. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you. 
saying, buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out for him the money. 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it. Took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed. Both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of prison. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Why in the world, Joshua, are you talking to me about real estate? Well, because it matters. What happens in Jeremiah chapter 32 is they're about to go into exile. Things are about to get really bad. The people are about to be carted off by a violent ruler into slavery and be there for who knows how long. But God says, Jeremiah, I want you to give the people a picture. I want you to walk up and I want you to buy property in this city. And I want you to seal it and, and, and do it all legally. And I want you to do this as a picture to say, hey, I'm an emissary of God and you think you've been carted off into slavery forever. But the fact of the matter is, even though I'm going to go with you into this nasty spot that you don't want to go, I own this land. I've already paid for this land. And one day, I'm going to come back with my title deed and I'm going to claim the land that I purchased a long time ago and it's going to come back to its rightful owner. It's already bought. It's already owned. It's just not in my possession yet, but I've got the deed. And one day I'm going to come back and I'm going to take what's mine. That is exactly what's happening in Revelation 5. The scroll in Jeremiah is a title deed for a piece of property. A property which Jeremiah possesses the right of redemption. He is the next of kin which makes him what? Fans of Ruth? He's a kinsman redeemer. He has the ability to purchase this land if the person who has it does not. He is therefore qualified to purchase it back from its current owner regardless of how it came into his possession. So if our scroll is this model rather than the scroll of Ezekiel, that must mean Jesus is portrayed in Revelation 5 as a kinsman redeemer. And which means he must meet certain qualifications. He must be next of kin to the deceased one whose property he is redeeming. In this case, humanity. He must be willing to redeem the property. And he must be able to pay the price of redemption. So now that we have the background, 
I want to show you how the land got into the state it's in. And we will reach the high point of human history, which is Jesus coming back with his title deed. So first, I want us to see that in the same way that Baruch got rid of his land, humanity willingly exchanged God's country for a curse and forfeited our birthright. Now those of you who were here for my Ruth sermon series, get ready because we're going through the whole book today. In chapter 1 of Ruth, you can see Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 right here on your handout. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, which means what? House of bread. Beth in Hebrew means house. Lechem means bread. So Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. So let me get this straight. This man and his family, to get away from a famine, leave a place blessed of God, which literally means house of bread, to go into a land cursed of God named Moab. Because they think it's going to be better there. God had promised the blessing where they were if they would have just stayed there and obeyed Him. He was going to take care of them. And if you go on farther in Ruth, when they come back after everybody's died, guess what? All the people that they left are still there. They hadn't died. They just stayed. But this guy gets up. Elimelech gets up and takes his family into this cursed land away from the blessing of God. Can you think of anybody else in human history that did that? Yes, his name's Adam. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. Who? Adam and Eve. Our great, 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 I don't have my watch on. Great, great, great grandparents. God had told them, I have taken you and put you in this land and be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That God, when He created us, I'm going to say something that might be controversial to you. Do you know that God created you to rule the world? That is the purpose of humanity. Not to rule the cosmos. That job's taken. But this earth, this world... Have you ever noticed that humanity seems to always be at the top of the food chain? That's by design. If you look back in Genesis when God created the world, He created all of it, but then He made this beautiful garden in Eden. And what He did is He dropped Adam and Eve in the middle of it, and He said, did you see this? Make everything out there look like this. Rule it. Subdue it. Bring it into order. Make it grow. Make it flourish. Fill this planet with people like you. Run this show, humanity. That's what I made you to do. I made you in my image. I am God. I rule the universe. I have created this world and you are to be little images of me ruling this world and and bringing order to it and bringing beauty to it. That God made you to rule the world. But do you? Do you rule the world? 
When's the last time you looked out at your front yard and said, now didn't I tell you to stop growing weeds? I told you last week, grow slower and you, dandelions, out. You're down there. When's the last time you did that and it actually listened to you? When's the last time you planted a garden and the only thing that came up is what you planted? When's the last time you got into an argument with your body because it was doing things you didn't want it to do? Okay, there you go. God created you to rule this world, but you don't. Why? Because you left the garden. Because God said, I've given you this world to rule, but there's only one rule for you. You don't eat from that tree. So naturally, being children, what did we do? Genesis 3, 17a, and then verse 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. We no longer rule the world. We disintegrate. Now, understand this, that under the Old Testament law, land that was sold was never really sold in a permanent sense. God was really the owner. The land just changed hands between who had use of it at the time. So property could change hands in several ways. It could change hands by being sold Or it could change hands because its current owner died with no legitimate heir. Well, what did God promise Adam was going to happen when he ate from that tree? Adam died with no legitimate heir. So guess who rules the world now? The snake does. Because... Under some instances in the law, when the rightful owner of the land died, if they had no heir, it could be claimed by whoever got there first. Y'all, Satan runs the world now on an earthly view. Why? Because the ones to whom God gave rulership of the world gave it to him. God honors our choice. He honored our rulership. What did we decide to do? We decided to listen to Satan instead of God. So now Satan has gone from being the snake to being the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. That's how he's referred to in the New Testament, is it not? It's uncomfortable to think that Satan rules the world, isn't it? It should scare... What was it you said, Anthony, this morning? It should scare the hound dog out of you. Y'all didn't think he's going to come to church this morning and hear the word Satan rules the world, did you? Uh, don't, uh, there's only problem that the Bible says it. So now, since we willingly exchanged God's country for a curse and forfeited our birthright, 
We now live in a land that should be ours. But we live here as poor, hopeless slaves. That we sold ourselves into slavery to sin, death, and Satan willingly when we decided to eat fruit from the tree instead of obey God. And without humanity, the, the world's rightful ruler there, Satan claimed rulership. Though it might be temporary and not permanent, but still with the ability to exercise a very real power over everyone who is enslaved. Look at Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Now this is Ruth and, and Naomi coming home. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem. This is where they should have been from the beginning. This is where they should have been the whole time. And all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. You didn't go out full. You went out because you didn't like where God put you. You might say God brought you home empty, but where did, where's your husband? Where are your sons? They're dead. God just brought you home. You ought to be happy with that. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Students of the Bible, is any of what Naomi just said true? No. Can you think of anybody else who might be in a land that God designed them to inhabit and rule, but for some reason they're totally and completely blinded to the working of God in their life and blame Him for all of their bad choices and don't attribute any of His blessings to Him? Only every single one of us. Naomi came back to Bethlehem, a city in which she should have ruled. We live on this planet, a planet on which we should rule, but we don't because we left and we gave that to somebody else. But somewhere in your heart, have you ever looked at a situation on earth and said, this is not right. Things should not be this way. One of my favorite movies is Lord of the Rings. And I, and I love it. And there's a scene where a, a king's son has died. And he's standing over his grave weeping and said, no parent should ever have to bury their child. That's not saying it, it, it's, that's not saying it can't happen. He's saying a world should not exist where someone has to experience this. This is wrong. It is objectively wrong. When people are mistreated, you look at it and you say, it shouldn't be this way. There shouldn't be such things as mass shootings. There shouldn't be such things as racism. There shouldn't be such things as hatred. There shouldn't be such things as terrorism. There shouldn't be such things as theft. There shouldn't be such things as abuse. There shouldn't be such a thing as being afraid of the people who should be looking out for you. But you know what? We live in a world that we don't rule anymore. Satan rules it. But somewhere in our heart, we have in our mind that picture of Eden, the way the world is supposed to be, and we cry out for that and say, God, why can't we have it back? Well, it's because you sold it. 
And you can't pay the price to buy it back. You can't redeem it. You don't have the money. Romans 6.16, Paul says, Don't you know to whom you present yourself slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. When we presented ourselves in the garden to Satan as slaves, why does it shock us that we became slaves? It's like we said cuff us and then complained that we couldn't move our hands. That if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not, you don't just have trouble doing right, you can't do right. You might be able to do a right thing here or there, but the ability to live a righteous life is beyond you. It's beyond me. And we ought not be that way. Ought we not? That we know what's good, so why can't we just do it? It's because we're slaves. Slaves to who? Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. You once walked according to the course of this world. According to who? To the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. When you sold yourself into slavery back in the garden, you didn't just sell yourself into slavery to some bad impulse inside you, that you are wearing Satan's team jersey and he is calling the shots. Here, let me give you an example. Does it interest you in the least that throughout all of human history, somehow or another, those who were in power always find a way to target the Jews? Have you ever noticed that? Hitler targeted the Jews. Anti-Semitism as a movement hates the Jews. Is there anyone surrounding the nation of Israel that loves them? No. It's because Satan hates the Jews. And Satan rules this current world. So, interesting how that seems to work, isn't it? Isn't it interesting throughout history how no matter who is in power, there always seems to be a push justified some way or another to kill children, infants, abortion. Look back in your Old Testament. They've made their children pass through the fire to Molech, a demon god. Sacrifice their children that way. We don't sacrifice them to Molech today. We sacrifice them to the right to do what we want with our own bodies. To choice. It's just another name for Molech. Which is just another name for Satan. Satan rules this world currently. He has the same playbook he always has. And there's a reason that people keep falling into it. It's because they're enslaved. They don't have freedom. They think they do, but they don't. They live in a world that they should be ruling, but they don't because they're enslaved. They sold that right to Satan. So, since we don't have the ability to purchase this land back, remember, a redeemer must be the nearest of kin. 
They must be able to pay the cost and they must be willing to pay the cost. We might be human. We fit that bill. We might be willing to pay the cost, but we can't, can we? So only a kinsman redeemer, someone close relative to us, would be able to purchase that property back. So since this is humanity's property that has to revert back to humanity to to be permanently held, our kinsman redeemer would have to be what? Would have to be human. You know, an angel couldn't do it because God didn't intend angels to rule the world. If anything other than a human rules the earth, then God's purposes have been thwarted. So it must be a human. If you're not a human, he couldn't rule over the earth and subdue it the way that God told humanity to. He would have to be financially able. In this cosmic saga, that means he has to be able to pay what we gave up in the garden in our place. What was the cost of our disobedience in the garden, church? Death. Have you ever seen an angel die? No. Has to be human. Human has to be able to pay that cost. And what did we die for? We died for sin. So the human has to be financially able to pay our cost, which means he can't have any sin of his own. Otherwise, he would owe that cost himself. He couldn't pay someone else's debt. So not only must he be human, he must be a perfect, sinless human. And then he must be willing. He must be willing to pay the price of being punished for sin in the place of the rest of humanity. That would mean he would not be able to have any sin of his own. He would have no sins of his own that deserve death. He would be, uh, if he was, he would be enslaved like the rest of us. So even if he were willing, he couldn't do it. He's got to be human, he's got to be perfect, and he's got to be personally willing to be able to do this. If he was legally qualified and financially able but not willing to do it, then we're still enslaved, right? He has to be willing to actually go through with it. There's got to be a Redeemer. The whole purpose of the story is to find the Redeemer. That the slaves, the Naomi's, the Ruth's, it doesn't matter if they're in the land. It's not a good ending for Ruth and Naomi to come home and live there as beggars in their own house that they no longer own anymore, is it? That's not a good ending. But Ruth just happened to walk into a field one day. It just happened... To come home with more grain than she knew how to carry. And Naomi said, where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. You can just about stop and have church on that line right there. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. She said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Matthew 121, the angel said, she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His people. Y'all, Jesus is one of us. He's one of us. 
Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. That the God of the universe took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That Jesus took on flesh, became fully God, fully man, walked the earth for three and a half years, and was murdered so that He could die the death that we should have died. That just... Like Boaz was a close relative, Jesus is a close relative to us because He is the Son of Man. He is human. He legally qualifies. Is He willing? Yes. How do I know? Because there's a little manger in a little place called Bethlehem that tells me He was. He didn't show up with pomp and circumstance on earth. He just showed up with a choir of angels and shepherds. He came down here. And every breath He took and every step He took living a perfect life without sin from Bethlehem all the way to Calvary, He said, it is finished. The debt was paid. He was financially able, willing, and next of kin. He can do it. And He did do it. So finally... Now that the kinsman redeemer has shown up. Because by the way, the point of the book of Ruth is not Ruth. The point of the book of Ruth, Ruth is Boaz. Ruth's just the way to get to Boaz. So now we've gone all the way through this whole Bible, all the way to Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now I get to start my sermon. Just like Ruth starts when Boaz shows up. The end of the story starts when Boaz shows up. The end of the story starts in Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. That all of the Bible... Let this sink in. That all of the Bible has been leading up to these six verses. Every verse from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 5 verse 1 has been leading up to this six verse passage. So John sees, and the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And a search is made of the entire cosmos. Is there anybody else in heaven? No. Is there anybody on earth? No. Is there anybody below the earth? No. And no one is found that was able to open the scroll or look at it. And John starts weeping. Why? Because he knows what it is. He knows what it is. He knows that this is the title deed to redemption. He knows that this is humanity's destiny in a scroll. That this is what always we have been destined for. This is all of our hopes. This is all of our dreams. This is all of our purpose. This is what God made us for. And it's out there in His hand, sealed up with a scroll, saying, begging anyone, take it. Take it if you can. And there's nobody in the cosmos who can. So John loses it. Because if nobody takes this scroll, God's plans will go unfinished. 
Humanity will be lost forever. But one of the elders says, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. By the way, in Greek, this is a diminutive. Any of you who know Spanish, if you've ever heard the word abuela, that means grandma, you can say abuelita, little grandma. That's so sweet. Instead of just the word lamb, arnon, it's the Greek word arnion. It means little lamb. He's gentle. He's peaceful. He's not big and intimidating when you see him as a little lamb, but then he looks as though he's been slain. This little, gentle lamb. Who in a quick turnaround has seven horns and seven eyes. What is that? Well, horns are indicative of power. Seven is indicative of complete. You do the math. Has complete and total power. This little, tiny lamb. that You would never look at a lamb and expect him to be all powerful, but then people did that for three and a half years, didn't they? This all-powerful lamb who had been slain and who knows all and sees all because he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, not literally seven eyes. That's complete vision, complete knowledge. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's. And all that was Kilion and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Let me read this from the New Testament. And Jesus said, to the elders and all the people that you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Adam's. All that was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's. I have purchased it back. Moreover, the church, the widow, the slave, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his brethren and from his place as ruler of the earth. You are witnesses this day. Ruth is just a microcosm of the whole Bible. Which is why the elders are singing, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Church, your purpose for living is to rule the world. But if you do not know Jesus, you are a slave to Satan, sin, and death, and you have no hope of ever finding your way out of it. But I have good news for you. There is a kinsman redeemer who has purchased you back. He's got the title deed. It belongs to him. All we're waiting on is for him to come and collect. That's it. 
Jesus is my kinsman redeemer. He has purchased me back. He has purchased my destiny back. I am no longer a slave to Satan, sin, and death. I am free. And you can be too. And if you're sitting here today and you have never trusted Christ, you have never given your life to Christ, let me warn you as strongly as I can. The kinsman redeemer had two jobs. I found this out this week. You don't see this in Ruth. Kinsman redeemer has two jobs. One is to purchase back the land of the deceased and procure an inheritance for him. But do you know what else the kinsman redeemer's job was to do? If someone illegally slew his next of kin, they were the one to track them down and extract justice. You know who it was killed Adam? A dirty, rotten snake. And you know what my kinsman redeemer is coming to do? He's going to come kill a snake. And he's going to take care of anybody else who aligns with him too. The kinsman redeemer could take his land back regardless of who had it and regardless of how it got in their hands. So Satan might rule this world today now. Today is the day to pick your sides. Do you want my redeemer or do you want the snake? Because if you pick the snake, you might have a good time right now. But I promise you, Sunday's coming. Mm -hmm. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to be on the right side of history. But that's your choice. So Ms. Joyce is about to come lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. And I want to extend this opportunity to you that if you want to come and know Jesus Christ today, you've got an opportunity. And I think it's so appropriate that the hymn is 316. Jesus is tenderly calling. He's still that lamb. He's still that lamb. He's still gentle. His yoke is still easy. His burden is still light. You can still find rest for your souls, but don't forget that that lamb is also all-powerful and all-knowing. If you don't know Jesus... Today is your opportunity. You can either come down the aisle and talk to me. You can fill out the slip on the side of your bulletin. Put it in the offering plate when it goes by. If you're visiting with us, we don't need your money. We just want to see that you've been here and have a chance to reach out to you and minister to you. Fill out that card. Put it in the, the offering plate when it comes by. We'll follow up with you. Catch me at the back door. But don't leave here without trusting Jesus if you don't know him. I'm going to pray. We're going to stand and sing together. And if you need to come, you come. Father. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, thank you for being our kinsman redeemer, the one legally qualified, financially able, and personally willing to purchase us back from Satan's sin and death. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all glory, honor, and power for that that there is in the entirety of the universe. And as much as we have, we offer and give to you today because you deserve all of it. Lord, I pray that there are those here today who would hear the call to be saved and they would answer and Jesus, I pray that this would be a church who never aligns with the snake, that we're just waiting for our kinsman redeemer to come back and take, his, take what is rightfully you. We love you, Jesus, and we can't wait for that day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.